Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Gail Mountain, a Professor of Health Services Research at the University of Sheffield, will discuss her current work into improving the quality of life of older people through technology. Thank you so much for inviting me this evening. It's a great honour to be here, to be honest. I'm really pleased. Um, I've known uh, colleagues that buy me... uh, over a number of years now, and also colleagues at University of Bath. So I'm very pleased to be able to come and share some thoughts with you, and I'll be very interested in your questions at the end of the session. Uh, So firstly, uh, just an acknowledgement of Katie Equal. Hopefully people will have been able to browse the photography exhibition outside, uh, and maybe afterwards as well. Uh, I'll return to that. So that's one of our, one of our projects uh, with University of Bath. Just a couple of acknowledgements. Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, because they've funded a lot of my research over the years and been quite tolerant of some of my ideas, I think. And University of Sheffield. It, I don't know why it's, it's a really bad image, that. But anyway, that's where I work on a daily basis. Um, and that's where I've come from today. And the weather was a lot better in Sheffield than down here. <laughs> Unusually so. So this is what I'm going to talk about. Moving beyond the pendant alarm, how can technologies meet the the needs of an ageing population? Can they? An image that is familiar to us all of kids on gadgets and gizmos, laptops, games, my son never stops. Is technology just for use? Is that what it's about? Is that what you think of when you think of those particular items? Now, here's someone with a pendant alarm around his neck, looking quite frail, I feel. Okay. Now, when we insert the words later life, is that what you think of? rather than the image that went before, I wonder. Now, this is a very grainy image, isn't it? The person in the hoist is me. As an occupational therapy student at at Derby School of Occupational Therapy in the 1970s. Uh, Trying out a hoist, this was for one one of the publicity leaflets for the college, would you believe? Um, And I I kind of, uh, I mean, I'm amused by this image, um, but also I wonder what what it was about. I mean, I just think, I I do remember it being taken. I think at the time I thought it was a bit of a lark, really, just being waved around in this hoist. I didn't relate these things to my life. It was completely divorced, divorced, even though I was training in this caring profession. Um, The images on uh, on the side are of various items of assistive technology. And again, uh, these were the things that we were taught that people would use as they uh, became disabled, or were disabled, or became, had age-related disability. And, I, uh, and, the, and again, um, did I really think about this too much? I don't think I did really, to be honest. We had to pretend to be disabled. We had to go around the town uh, and in wheelchairs and so forth. But it, it's... It's not a reality at that age, is it? In fact, 
uh, as I age, and I'm in, well into my middle years now, uh, it's becoming more of a reality in the way that it wasn't then. Jermaine Greer said this, and I, because ageing is so unpredictable, it's experienced as a series of unpleasant surprises. Now, I don't go with everything Jermaine Greer says, but I do go with this. Even now, I have to say there are some unpleasant surprises. Probably the first one was when I was 45 and realised I got to wear spectacles for the first time in my life, for example. These unpleasant surprises, people don't tell us, do they? Because we don't talk about getting old. It's something that happens. There's um, a woman called Jane Miller who's written this book, which I have got. I've purchased this. Heard about it on Woman's Hour, to be honest. Um, It's about the experience of getting older. And amongst other things in the book, she said this, I've looked and listened mostly in vain for news what it's like for other old people who inhabit it as I do. Again, this issue we don't talk about getting older. It's not on the agenda. When I I did a lecture at at Sheffield University last year, and I did quite a lot of work trying to find out what academics said about getting older, what people like me, people worked in gerontology, say about getting older, there was a complete paucity of material. I found it very difficult to find anything. Um, And this struck me as being quite strange when people work in the field. There was one edition of this um, journal, the Journal of Ageing Studies, and this is a, a sociologist called Chris Phillipson who said this. And there was another sociologist called Julia Twigg that said something else. But apart from that, not a lot, to be honest, uh, there's, a, there's a article in the there's a, a columnist in the Guardian uh, I think every Tuesday, Michelle Hansen, which I read avidly. She talks about getting older, but think about it. There's not a lot around. Okay. This is the group I work with at uh, Sheffield University, the Rehabilitation Assistive Technologies Group. As you see, we're all mixed ages. I'm probably one of the oldest there. Quite a lot of young people. We're all involved in technology research, but what do we want from? For, from technology in our later life, I wonder. Again, something perhaps we ought to talk about a little more. I get tired of this graph. Have people seen this graph before? How could you have avoided seeing the graph? How many times do we see it on the TV? Doom and gloom. The ageing population. There's going to be more of them than there is of us. How are we going to cope with these numbers of older people? But the the point is that everybody in this room is represented on the graph, of course. If we're not there now, we're getting there, aren't we? So I I find this very odd that we divorce our impressions of ageing from ourselves continually. Okay, so uh, I mentioned the photo competition outside. Um, Katie Equal is a consortium of researchers funded by the EPSRC and our mission is to push out the uh, investment that the EPSRC has made into a programme of research called Extending Quality of Life of Old and Disabled People. 
uh, they've made a huge investment in, in myself and other researchers over at least a decade, over a decade. So, of course, they want to see the benefits of that research programme in practice. So we do lots of different things. We have lots of events. Uh, we, um, our website is, is a complete resource for different information, uh, monographs, out of events, uh, and, and all sorts of other things. One of the things that a colleague in here, um, Chris Eccleston, a professor at University of Bath, he dreamt this one up, that we ought to have a photo competition to challenge ideas of ageing, to think about how we conceptualise ageing in relation to technology in particular. So that's what we did, and the whole competition is outside. It's gone to the four um, UK parliaments, and we hope to take it to Brussels. So we invited anybody, anybody nationally, to submit uh, images of older people and technology, however that's construed, technology is a very broad thing, uh, and give, alongside that, provide some text about why the image was significant to them. And those are the categories, gadgets and gizmos, out and about, in the home, and an open category. And we were, we were very, very, very pleased with the results. And we had um, a national, the, we had judges, national judges, um, looking at these photos, and uh, we had some winners. So I just want to share some of these with you, though I know you have seen these outside. Yeah, this is more from the, uh, the website. Okay. Now, this was used for the flyer, and I do, I do really like this image. I've chosen my favourites here. Nintendo, she's playing with them. Yeah. And, and there's, there's quite a lot of text which is outside, so I'm not going to read what I brought in with me. But uh, the person who took this picture felt it captured a comfortable relationship with technology. Okay. There. On the phone. Gran catching up with a friend. Gran not able to use mobile technology, so we've got a rather Heath Robinson uh, affair here, but she's able to use a handset that she's used to using, that she feels comfortable with, and it's important for her. So she looks very animated. I really like it. Okay. This was the winner. This is taken in Leeds, actually, uh, outside the art gallery, apparently. Uh, I don't know who took it. And here's somebody on a Kindle. And... Um, <laughs> He felt this was important because obviously this was an older man using technology, but completely independently. He wasn't asking for any help, he was just getting on with it. And I think this is probably my absolute favourite. I love it. Has anybody been in the Apple stores? It's a complete, well, I, I was going to say it does my head in. It doesn't sound very, very professional, but it really does. Because pe younger people bounce up and sort of, it's all very whizzy. And, and I just love this because she's obviously not enjoying the whizzy <laughs> environment and the youth environment that it is. Um, again, the person who uh, took this photo uh, had a few interpretations of, of why she's yawning. Um, but perhaps we need to make technology more user-friendly for older people was one of those interpretations. So I do urge you to go and look at the other images and see what you think after this uh, lecture. Now, that's all very well and good, 
but what happens when we think about technology, particularly to meet health and social care needs. Again, we've got the pendant alarm featuring large. Okay. Telecare. A pendant alarm is a form of telecare. Remote monit monitoring to manage risks. So assisting the person to live independently. There's all sorts of different forms of telecare. And I know that BIME has been instrumental in, in developing some of this equipment, which is very good in some respects. I'll leave it at that for now. Anybody know what this is? Pardon? This is telehealth. Oops. Okay. This is remote monitoring of signs and symptoms uh, by an individual with a long-term condition. This is the latest policy push. Now, the telecare I've just shown, there was a policy push for telecare in uh, about 2005-06. So the local authorities were um, charged with really introducing telecare into their offer, their service offer. And, since, and it has taken off up to a point, I think. More recently, we've got a very big, very, very big policy push for telehealth. The idea is that instead of relying on services directly, face-to-face, the individual with a certain long-term condition, and at the moment the, the long-term conditions most favoured for this technology are chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, chronic heart failure, diabetes. Those conditions where there, there are very clear signs and symptoms to be monitored. So the person puts in their data and it goes to a profession or to a call centre or something like that. And if there's a problem, then there's an alert. I don't know whether anybody here has such equipment or is familiar with that. Now, the trouble is that the policymakers jump the gun a little bit, don't they, at times? We all know that about all sorts of things. Uh, in January, Paul Burstow, three million lives will improve through this uh, technology. Of course, the hope is for the cost savings, that this will mean that people won't need that face-to-face -face contact, which is very costly. Now, that's been a bit challenged by this, and I'm going to just try and do something here with this, and we'll see if it works. Even now, I've forgotten, you know. Alt. Click it first. Click it first, yeah. Then it's Alt, Tab, Release. No. So I've got my... Young person here. <laughs> but, uh, now, help me out of this. There. Okay, but, uh, and then I toggle that. Okay. So, since uh, the, the, the Department of Health invested a lot in um, a randomised control trial called the Whole Systems Demonstrator, which people may have heard of, a huge enterprise, 6,000 people involved in this. The hope was that it would demonstrate that telehealth could uh, bring the benefits that, it was, that, were, that were hoped for. Unfortunately, though it has demonstrated some benefits, the first publication in the BMJ has not shown the benefits that were hoped for in terms of cost savings. 
And now we've got... Um, I haven't brought up the article. What I've brought up is, is the kind of responses to this. Show us the evidence. Does telemedicine deserve the green light? Only part of the solution. And so on. Show us the evidence. Yeah, yeah. Does telemedicine deserve the green light? The pros and cons, etc. And so and so forth. So it's a bit of a problem. So the policymakers have jumped the gun a little bit. And what's happening now, uh, and I'm involved in a project around telehealth, I am committed to it, and I do think it will be embraced eventually. I think it will be a slow incremental change over time that services will adopt technology. But I don't think it will be the big bang that government hoped for. And, of course, um, now with the, the new changes to commissioning arrangements for health, as well as this this news about telehealth not de delivering cost savings or there's been a question mark, it's a bit of a problem. And there's been a big pullback out there away from the mainstreaming that was anticipated. <clears throat> okay. There's all sorts of challenges for implementation in, in health and social care. Practitioners need training and support. I wasn't trained to uh, use these forms of devices. I still think the training is very thin for new, uh, new students in healthcare. The public need to be aware. Uh, we hope that tele telecare will be purchased by individuals. Uh, they may choose to buy such things, but need to, need to know about it. Uh, devices have to be acceptable, reliable, and easy to use. Otherwise, uh, we all know from our own experience, if something doesn't work first time, well, that's that, isn't it? Connectivity has to be ensured. There is a real problem with some telehealth devices. They can't be connected. Certainly in Yorkshire, there are seven hills of Sheffield, and there are problems at times with that. Okay. 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 However, I mean, that's what's happening in, in health and social care now. That's not stopping us. We're still going ahead because new developments will continue. Eventually, um, technology will be embraced by services, and there's lots of great ideas out there. So I just wanted to... Um, describe a couple. Uh, this is uh, Robotics, uh, University of Hertfordshire. This is a project that um, Nigel Harris and I were involved in some years ago on stroke rehabilitation, technology for upper limb stroke rehabilitation. I think the time's right for this project now. We were a little bit early. People didn't really get it, but it's, that's changing. Here's a project from Sheffield, which is a, a user-friendly interface for older people, uh, and this is open source software, which means that it's, it's downloadable. Okay, just focusing on two examples from Sheffield now of new innovation. Firstly, the script project. Supervised care and rehabilitation involving personal tele-robotics. This is a European project, so it involves people from Italy, Germany, the Netherlands, as well as the UK. I'm not leading it. I'm pleased to say I'm not. European projects are difficult. Robotics is, is um, an area where there is great hope for the future. I don't know whether that's, that's uh, justified or not. I think the jury is out. Now, what we've been doing um, is trying to understand people's needs, or should I say in Sheffield, 
the researchers have been trying to understand the needs of individuals and how they use technology before we introduce the robotics and trying to tailor the robotics to something that's appropriate for individuals. In Sheffield, we're the clinical team. It is quite difficult to get the uh, technical teams to think, think like that on occasion because they're very enthused by the technology. So we have to try and, and point out the way that people live their, live their lives and how things might be embraced. Uh, I'm a little bit concerned about, for instance, about the size of what's been, being suggested. Um, I'm assured that colleagues in, in Europe, that they have space in their houses for a desk, a box, uh, a, la um, a screen, a uh, robotic uh, interface... I'm not sure that folks in Yorkshire have always got that sort of space available to them. For example, this is more. Yeah, so this is about trying to understand from people what their needs and aspirations are. This is people who've had a stroke. Okay. This is, uh, this is, I mean, it's very early, this project. This is the device upon which the robotic bit of it is being modelled. Uh, this is called a Sabo Mass, and where uh, the technology partners are developing that into something that's uh, appropriate for use in the home. There's a little way to go, isn't there, that you think, here? Also, there'll be a gaming device so that people can, uh, while they're doing their boring, repetitive upper limb exercises, because that's what's required for recovery from stroke, they will be able to play a game. Now, I keep saying to partners, I'm not sure everybody wants to play a game. I'm not sure I would want to play a game. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that will create the behaviour change that's required. I'm not, I don't know. They're more, they're more um, convinced. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Okay. So that's that project. This is a really quick whiz through. The second project I'm going to talk about is a SMART project, which has involved University of Bath, Chris Eccleston and his team, as well as Sheffield and Ulster. Now, the key words here are everyday technology. It is an integrated device made out of everyday technologies in the main to help people to manage their own long-term conditions, people with stroke, chronic heart failure or chronic pain, and in the community as well as in the home. There was a huge amount of uh, clinical and design work underpinning this. We, are, we have got a prototype, and I'll show you a little clip in a minute, of it. Uh, so it's not as early as the script project, the robotics project I've just shown. This is far further down the line. However, it's by no means ready to go into people's homes as part of a, um, a clinical package yet. We had to find out what was the best um, forms of, of self-management. What, what was recommended for people? What, was the, what, what does the evidence tell us? And that had to be built into the device. We wanted to build in a way of, of people um, being able to achieve the goals they want to in life. And this is quite occupational therapy, really. I want to be able to go to the shop. OK, how, now that you've, had this, um, you've got this condition, how are we going to um, work towards that? If you've got um, chronic pain, how are you going to be able to pace your activity 
so that you can manage that one day and not be exhausted the next. We need to build in outcome measures. And probably most importantly, and it's not written down there, we need to be able to build in mechanisms to help people change their behaviour. And we spent a long time thinking about that. Okay, so this is one of our researchers with, uh, with the Home Hub. So that, that's a touchscreen computer for use in the home. Okay, and that's just one screen, which says, my goal is to walk, walk two-mile round trip to the newsagents. But my goal today is to do a five-minute walk. Okay, and then it's transferred onto a mobile device, a mobile phone. And then there are some health checks to make sure that individual's okay to do that. So we've repurposed, I haven't personally, University of Ulster have repurposed the, the phone. Uh, so it's got inbuilt GPS and accelerometry, which of course they all do now. But it's repurposed to talk to that home hub. And for each of the long-term conditions, there's different peripherals that can be plugged in to the device. Now then. This is easy, easy to understand. Uh, one is there's a goal setting component, also provides feedback, and also some therapeutic exercises without. So the goal setting component, what we do is we meet the patient and we uh, try and establish some goals consistent with their own values in terms of their health, their relationships, and a number of different aspects of their lives. It's very important these goals are set by the patients themselves. So on the system, there's a review screen where they can look at what they're going to do and plan Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then if they see that they've got a very busy day one day and that they were tired, then they can look at what they've done. And then they can tie that up with how they were feeling. So say they felt really bad on Monday, they might look back to Sunday and say, yes, but look what I did. I did all this gardening. I went out for this long walk. We had the children round. And they can say, no wonder I was tired. So we were hoping that they could tie it together and be able to sort of see for themselves where they could make changes in their lives. It's on their daily plan that their walk today is, say, a 10-minute walk, for example. When they're ready to do that walk, they pick the phone up and start it. Mm -hmm. At the end of their walk, it bleeps at them and tells them that their walk's finished, and they have to rate how easy or difficult they found their walk. When they get home, the phone is placed next to the hub. It then transmits the data, and they can increase or decrease their walk or keep it the same based on what information they press when they were out for their walk. Obviously, you're trying to use change management you know, to let them exercise more and hopefully improve their quality of life and improve their heart failure symptoms. That's just um, one brief clip from uh, a film, that, a documentary film that we've made very proud of this. Uh, the chap that you just saw walking um, the last image, that's somebody who works in the, in the postal service and he takes the mobile phone. He, he talked about taking the mobile phone with him to work so he can check how, on his, his own condition, whether he's doing too much, too little, and adjust. As, as a, so it's a kind of reassurance. So if you're interested, there is... There is a lot longer film than that, but that just gives you an idea of where that particular device has got to. Okay. Okay. So the interesting thing about the SMART project is in the main, not entirely, but in the main it's using everyday technologies. And you, I mean, everybody's aware that, that technology is becoming more sophisticated by the month, it seems to me sometimes, and more pervasive as well as everywhere, isn't it? And because of that, it offers increasing potential in, in not just care 
settings, not just for health, but in other domains as well, possibly even to allow, allow us to enjoy ourselves as we get older. Being particularly interested in, in uh, the new forms of touch, touch screen technology, the iPad, the iPhone, and, and obviously other forms. I'm not, I'm, I'm not associated with Apple in any way, but I do think um, it was a revelation to me when I got my iPhone. I could actually text in a, in a successful way. I could actually do that without putting my glasses on particularly. And this, this, this is of importance. Uh, but it offers all sorts of new opportunities, this form of technology, and is doing. So what is it about it that makes it so alluring? Because it is. People can't leave them alone. It's something about it being attractive, um, easy to access. Uh, it makes me feel that I'm not such an old fogey because I've got one of these. There's all sorts of things. How can we exploit the potential of that kind of technology? I don't know about you, but I found that quite uplifting, actually. <laughs> but also, it just challenges technology just for youth. <coughs> there we've got somebody in the 100th year using the iPad. Most recently, myself and, and this is my PhD student, Sarah, have been looking at the potential of such, such technology with people with dementia. But not for surveillance, not for monitoring, not for finding out where they are and are they all right, but for pleasure, for enjoyment, for getting a bit more out of life. One of the highest uh, rated unmet needs of people diagnosed with dementia in the community is that they've got nothing to do, they're bored. How can we use this technology to assist somebody to have, have you know, kind of have quality of life? Um, 
This is Sarah with her, her poster, so I'm quite proud to say that she won the second prize in this poster competition in the White Rose ESRC um, doctoral training group. So we're pleased with that. Anyway, early days, we're just going to take the iPads out to a, a community group for people with dementia and see what happens. Work has been done already in care settings, but not with people in the community. So it's an interesting idea. Now, thinking about going back again, what makes these things so alluring, so desirable? It's about good design. Now, working with Lab for Living colleagues at Sheffield Hallam University, this is one of their strap lines here, use of useful, usable and desirable. And this is what things need to be. Um, the image there is of a completely different project, but I like it, and it just... Uh, just uh, emphasises the point. This was a project called a Future Bathroom that we finished some time ago now, um, but the uh, prototypes are still um, being considered by industrial partners. And it was about redesign. It ended up, actually. It's not where I thought it was going to go. I thought we'd redesign assistive technology. The designers redesigned the bathroom. And then I began to think, well, why, why are things as they are? Why is a bath as it is? Why is a toilet as it is? because it was designed 100 years ago. Time for change. So you can see some ideas there of different ways of doing things in the bathroom. So, going back to our own later life, as I emphasised at the beginning, we tend to separate what we think is good for older people with ourselves, which is... is uh, perhaps we do this to protect ourselves. I don't know. I'd like people's views on that. Why do we do that? What about our own late, later life? What do we want? I certainly don't want some of the stuff that's around myself. I want something a bit more stylish. I don't want that. That's been in design 25 years now. Why hasn't it changed? Because it could have done. Is it because it doesn't matter? Is it because it's for old, frail people? I'll I leave you with that question. What are our own expectations? It is a personal agenda. It's something that we need to consider. Now then, views are changing, sort of. We get the graph and we get the doom and gloom. But the debates do continue. There's a debate that came out of The Guardian um, this week, I think. Uh, and I might have to ask my young friend here again. Click it first. Ah, success. Oh, I'm, I'm skilled up now. Okay, so this is uh, about, it's about Asia, really. Future is caring, okay. And this is Danny, Danny Dawling's uh, report of it's not all such a bad thing. Um, in Japan, they are, there's a huge ageing population and they are coping and things are changing out there. Um, and... It's to be debated, I think, some of the issues in this article. What horrified me, though, when I looked at some of the links to this, some of the comments that were made in response to this article, that wasn't very uplifting. There were some dreadful things written about the ageing population by individuals in response to this article, which is slightly um, depressing, I think. Because people can say what they like 
any time now, can't they? Twitter, blogs. So, if you're interested in this, you might want to join Katie Equal and join the debate, because we try and debate these things. You might want to consider it. You might want to come along to one of our events. Um, again, I'll just... I'll try and just bring up the website, but if I can't, then that's too bad really now, I think. There. Oh, okay. Okay, so this is our website, and you'll see that you can join us. You can get um, information about what we're doing, and that just comes through on email or hard copy if you prefer it. Uh, you'll see all the different things that we're doing here, links to events, publications, and join the community. Uh, it would be nice to see people at events in the future. Okay, and thank you for listening. Bill, yeah, thank you very much for that. That's, that was very, uh, very enlightening and very um, a lot of things to think about. Now, we have plenty of time for questions, um, and we have two roving microphones, one for each aisle. Uh, Tim, is, Tim is the other roving man. So, who's for the first question? Shall I get you started? No. Please do. Uh -huh. Um, yeah, just just to get the debate started. But um, what immediately came to mind with with an aging population is the fact that there's a huge business opportunity out there for different types of engineering, different types of um, uh, devices or whatever. And rather than you intimated there were some negative comments about that last piece, um, really it should be turned on its head and saying there's huge business, business opportunities out there for lots of organisations and bringing employment and all that sort of thing with Asia and Europe all ageing dramatically. I couldn't agree more, but it seems to me that certain industries are slow to catch on. Question. There you go. Okay. <laughs> um, when I did my final dissertation, I looked at the trends of um, IT technology and identified two themes. Um, which changed along with the, the development of IT technology. And that, one of them was miniaturization, so things are getting much smaller yes. and much more compact. Yes. So it won't be long before we have 800-pound devices with the mechanical properties of a Rivita. Mm -hmm. um, also, um, convergence as well. Like an I iPhone is not only a phone, but also a camera and a, a Walkman. And um, I'd like to point out that my, my daughter's four years old, and she knows how to use an iPad and she gets confused that things don't work like an iPad. Mm -hmm. um, she takes up her cordless phone from home and points at things thinking that her, her granddad can look at it when you obviously can't because the technology is not similar to what an iPad or 
an iPhone is, and also um, when she picked up a mobile phone for the first time, she thought it was a camera. So do you think those kind of elements, such as miniaturization and convergence of technology into devices, could be um, a, a problem for older generations picking up the technology as easily as they should? That's already a problem, isn't it? So yeah. Miniaturization is, is definitely a problem, and that is, is designing for use rather than, a, than an older population, in my opinion. So, yeah, yes, I, I do think there's a problem. And, and again, it's, it depends when industry catch on to the fact that there is a limit to how far you can miniaturise um, and meet the needs of the majority of the population. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd like to point out, I, I, I nearly broke my wife's iPad because um, I thought it was a mat and I put um, a boiling hot um, pot of water on it. <laughs> so so I, 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 I'm susceptible to those um, changes as well. Thanks. But I do think that as older people can use the technology. Um, the issue about youth and technology is an interesting one because, um, and, and it also for me as a work, working woman, I've got the infrastructure support. If I can't work something, I go to work and, and ask, ask somebody who, who, who knows. If I'm an older person at home with, say, the internet or a device and it goes wrong, then who am I going to ask? I would just like to to um, talk about one of the pictures that you didn't show, but is outside, which shows a small child helping Granny use IT. Yes. And I just make the point that you want to make everything so easy that a five-year-old can manage it. It makes it so much easier for everybody, but particularly for the five-year-old to help Granny. Mm -hmm. I'd like to hear from some of the youth up there, actually, about what they think. Uh, I was a bit surprised uh, that uh, I find that older people, I've got quite old parents, and they struggle with day-to-day -day life. I mean, lifting up a whole uh, kettle full of water while they're making a cup of tea. Those things are, I think, much more serious in terms of uh, where help or better technology or some other way of, of dealing with those things is important. Uh, that is an element. And the other element that the gentleman raised, the five-year-old helping uh, <coughs> granny, I think it's, it's also the family structure which is also important where uh, whatever way, I don't know what's, what's the best way out of it in the European family structure. I think it's, it's important that uh, people within the family help the older people? I, yeah, <clears throat> yes. Um, this thing about getting older and finding things difficult, it's certainly the case that as one becomes older, as I've seen my elderly relatives age, then life tunnels down to what you have to do. And trying to get things done that you have to do in order to be able to um, just manage life appropriately. So, making a cup of tea. But there is more to life than making a cup of tea. Then, when you've done those things, what are you going to do? I think, and I, taught, I think my profession, and I'm looking at Liz White over there, and she's already grimacing, what I'm going to say next. 
Um, I think that we've been over-preoccupied with what people can and can't do. And it's all right to get help, if, you, if there's help available, to help you to do something so that you might have the energy to do what you really want to do. So, yes, the kettle and, and all those things are important, but there's more to life than just doing functional tasks. And I think life's not worth living if that's what it boils down to. Um, it, it strikes me that um, one of the things about good design is it's uh, very simple and it does what you want and that um, maybe it works the other, it could work the other way around in terms that um, I heard that they, uh, there was a, a phone developed in uh, Japan which was very simple with large buttons for older people but it then became a popular phone for other people as well because it was just very simple and did what you wanted yes yeah. So maybe design could work the other way, because so often it seems to work from young to old, which doesn't That's seem right. necessarily a... I'm, I'm, so well. I'm sure that colleagues might be able to think of an example where that's happened as well. I'm looking around. I think there are. There are examples. And I can't bring one to mind at the moment. Well, the de-stilling of the uh, VCR, video recorder, oh. is a classic example. Because nobody because could use it, it anyway. Yes, yeah. Great, because I, I couldn't use it. I wasn't prepared to try even, really. Nobody like that? Please, <laughs> um, I believe you're talking at the Thomas Pocklington Foundation yes. in a little while. Uh, and I wondered if you could possibly summarise some of the new developments uh, for people who are visually impaired. And particularly, mm. I'm inter interested in the combination of, the, of visual impairment and dementia and wondering if there's any new developments for that. Oh, dear me, that's put me on the spot, hasn't it, everybody? <laughs> I have to emphasise that it's not my area's specialty, visual impairment, though as a therapist I, I have some knowledge. I'm just, I think I'm just chairing the session. I can tell you about one development that I know from Sheffield Hallam University that's going to be showcased there, and that's um, a robotic guide dog. It's not the way you're thinking. You're, are you all thinking of a, an R2-D2? I know you are, and it's not like that at all. <laughs> it is a stick. But instead of having um, a, 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 it's, um, a stick that, that's robotic. So that will be interesting, just to, to kind of challenge the mind a little bit. I do think that some of this new, these very uh, can, seemingly wacky ideas can challenge the mind. And that's, that's just one thing. But um, I'd have to pass over to colleagues who are a little bit more expert. Hopefully you'll be able to come. Bristol. Oh, well. You'll hear the experts there, won't we, me? <laughs> So it's me again, and um, a very quick one at this point. Um, I just want to expand on the gentleman's point about the easy-to-use phone and how it transgresses from young to old. And um, BT also have a big-button phone, which was very popular for both young and old people, and it is a discipline known as inclusive design, 
what are your thoughts on inclusive design and how it may assist the kind of technological gaps between young and old people? Well, John Clarkson, who leads the group at University of Cambridge in inclusive design, is part of KT Equal. So I, I do know a reasonable amount about it. Um, I mean, they've done fabulous work and their inclusive design toolkit is available on the web and can, can be downloaded. With respect to the big button phone, I was actually, I'd actually won one um, at one of John Clarkson's events. And uh, I gave it to my daughter, who did use it in her flat for a while. Um, I, I didn't like it. I didn't like it because it, it looks like a big button phone. Some, it, it somehow lacked the, that alluring design. But I can see, I mean, how it's very inclusive. Let's put it like that. There are some people for whom it's not possible to design inclusively. This is people with higher levels of, of disability or very old people. And I hope through showing the robotics that that's one area where it is, you can't design inclusively, you can't make something that everybody's going to want because it's designed to do a particular thing. But we should aim to make uh, everything... Um, as attractive for, for everybody in the population as possible. And I'd urge you to look at that toolkit. Hello. Um, I'm very interested in um, assistive technology for people living with dementia. Yes. And one of the things I wonder um, about in your research, mm -hmm. in terms of what's desirable and alluring for people living with dementia, do you feel that there's an appetite and a receptivity for these new wonderful gadgets? Or do you find that people do prefer to have these new wonderful gadgets um, adapted so that they have a sense of familiarity and allows them to use their long-term memory to, um, to access what's behind the, um, the aesthetic design? There is some research being conducted to try and make... Um, Things like iPads look like books. I'm aware of that. I'm not convinced by that. Um, I think that people with dementia would like things just like everybody else likes things. Often when we talk about dementia, we're talking about the carers of people with dementia. We're not talking about people with the condition themselves. And we're talking about what they want. So a lot of the telecare technology has and in some cases, rightly so, being designed to help carers to, to continue caring for people. But it's, what, what carers say and what people with the conditions say can be very different. So I, I'd probably urge you to ask people what they want. Yes, yeah. There's obviously an increasing amount of um, research going on and... Um, body of knowledge being built up in assistive technology and uh, inclusive design but with the <clears throat> initiative for telecare having come and gone with the government and with the whole system demonstrator mm -hmm. not being shown to, to <clears throat> be generating cost savings I wonder if you think there's enough um, initiative going on and whether we're going to meet the demands of the demographic bulge and where's, where's the initiative going to come from do you think? Well the million dollar question The demographic bulge. Again, I go back to, I suppose that's meeting my needs because I'm part of the demographic bulge. And how, how, how are my needs going to be met? 
technology will become more pervasive. I see people even now are working on devices that are embedded into different, uh, say, into furniture in the home. I think computers won't, won't be like this. In 10 years' time, they'll be embedded into coffee tables, and chairs, and all sorts of things in the house. How the bulge will be managed, including myself, I don't know. And uh, I, I don't know whether anybody else has got any answers to that one. Can I just comment on that, that Heinz Wolf, some of you remember Heinz Wolf of the sort of great egg race, um, he does a really very wonderful and very actually convincing talk that actually it is a major challenge and he sort of says we ought to go on to a war footing over the next 20 years in terms of the challenge that faces because we've got no money and he's actually suggesting that we need to look after each other. We actually need to learn to look after each other and be a community. And he's suggesting we should have a voucher scheme um, so that while we're able now, we will look after our older neighbour and we would earn some vouchers so that when we're old, then somebody else can look after us in turn. And he is looking at the practicalities of having this sort of banking caring scheme. Um, But he gives a really very strong argument, a very persuasive argument around this, that we do need to look after each other a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. I was... Concur with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have a question too, Gail. Yes. Um, I can answer it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do well the last one. <laughs> um, you're talking about people with dementia using iPads. Yeah. And I, I wonder how far into dementia is technology relevant and what will technology for people with much more advanced dementia look like? Well, there are, I mean, colleagues have been designing devices for people with moderate to severe dementia, as you know, specialist devices, um, to enable reminiscence, to enable creativity. Um, So there is a body of work going on to develop things for people at that stage of of the con. And I still think there's relevance. And indeed, Roger, sitting there, will back that up because of your your work that you did with the independent project on the music player and the other devices. So definitely. But I think... I'm interested in the fact how, how, um, for how long will we need what, what would be perceived to be specialist devices for people when, when technology is developing at such a pace. That, that's, that interests me. So even, I mean, I, the, the iPad, you can make the text bigger, you can do all sorts of things to adapt it now. But because things are changing at such a pace, will we need specialist devices in the future for those people. I don't know. I'm questioning that. I don't whether Roger's got a view on that. I'm putting you on the spot now, but I'm, I'm bound to a bit, aren't I? Yeah. Can, yeah. Thanks, yes, you have put me on the spot, but, but never mind. I, I, I suppose the thing that drove the work that we were engaged in over many years was very much one of trying to get some kind of grasp of the perspective of the person with dementia, whether it's early stage dementia or whether it's later on, and that's very difficult. It's very tricky to put yourself in the position of how the world looks to them. So inevitably, you tend to end up following a kind of iterative path where you try things out. You observe how people behave. You modify your approaches to see if you can make things better. And that's a very time-consuming process. But it seems to me, at the end of the day, if we are going to design things that actually support people, actually improve their quality of life, actually improve their ability to interact with their environment and live normal lives actually is the only way that you do have to 
engage very closely with, with um, people with dementia and live life with them to see how the things that you as a designer are evolving, how, uh, how, what, what sort of features you have to really you know, focus on. And interesting, your music pay is now available, isn't it, commercially? Is that right? Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm just nodding it. I'm disappointed because the time's right now. Again, that was an early project. People yeah. were really very interested in dementia when you did that. It's, that's it's, changed a lot. Mm, it actually reflects the, the point that was originally made at the first question by by um, by the mayor in some of the, of, of the commercial potential of the sort of things that you've been talking about. It is key, you know, if, if these things are going to be rolled out in no, larger numbers, then, then we have to get our commercial colleagues on board. Mm. And, and that's tricky because as researchers, we're doing small numbers, looking at um, what might work for a small number of people and what the business community are looking for are good business cases. They can see there's a... There's a potentially big market there, but how effective are these things? Are they, are they going to help 1% of that population or are they going to help 30%? And that makes you know, a complete difference to, to, the, to their approach. And in a sense, it's, it's one of the things that, as a research community, we perhaps have to embrace a bit more is to try and provide that evidence that our commercial colleagues are going to say, OK, yeah, we, we, clearly there's a case here to invest. Um, within the last couple of weeks on the BBC, I've heard some, some research summarised very briefly which compared the daily activities of fairly large groups of ageing elderly widowers and widows. And they noted that the widows spent a lot of time in social engagement, mm-hmm. assuming they were physically able to do so. So they were out there at bridge clubs and afternoon classes and coffee mornings and and all sorts of activities, whereas the elderly widowers generally stayed at home, engaged in solitary activities, and the view was that they were looking for ways to encourage the males to do less of the staying at home and out of the fresh air, to encourage them to be more like the widows. That was seen as as being healthy. Nigel's already made the point, or quoted Heinz Wolf, about the social interaction and the voucher schemes. It seems to me that any devices have got to be put into the context of improving quality of life, which which is built on the basis of social interaction. And and the more we have. Um, elderly people who are, who are then retired and available for community activities and even younger, unemployed people also, also available for community activities. It seems to me that that is something that needs to be developed. Yeah. I have Thank to you. just emphasise that technology is only one part of what I do and uh, we have got a couple of randomised control trials at the moment of preventive interventions for community living older people, one called Lifestyle Matters, which is an occupational therapy orientated intervention, another of telephone befriending groups in the community. So, yes, I, I totally agree with you. Well, thank you all very much for your contributions and questions. And thank you, um, Gail, for, um, uh, for standing there and answering all those, all those well, questions. And some of them better than others, <laughs> I feel. Um, it's, it's a debate to be had. I'm sure Still. there is, and, uh, yeah. and uh, we all look forward to being part of the bulge. But I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to turn to uh, Nigel now to, to close the meeting. Right. Okay, thank you.
Um, so I'm Nigel Harris. I'm the director of Biomin. It comes to me to draw our formal proceedings to a close. Um, if I may uh, put in a, a personal note, it gives me particular pleasure that uh, Gail was kind enough to come down and, and give the talk to us this evening. Um, I've worked with Gail on a number of projects um, over the last 10 years or so, and it's quite ironic to me that I had to leave Sheffield in order to collaborate with Gail down here in Bath. Um, the challenge of ageing and dementia is very high on our uh, national priority list. Um, the Mayor and the Vice-Chair will be aware that there are a range of organisations across the city of Bath working to make Bath a dementia-friendly city, and we do hope that that will succeed. You'll see Bymi's contribution to that in some of the projects that are out there in the lobby. We've selected ones particularly around assisted living and ageing. So, Gail, um, I'd like to thank you for coming down to talk to us. The very large number of people here um, reflect the level of interest in this and also, I think, the, your reputation and the work that you've done in this area. So we do appreciate that. Um, I've got two grown-up children, so um, it's all very relevant to me and, and uh, all too familiar, I think. Um, so you've fulfilled the promise of your talk. Thank you very much indeed. And we have a little gift for you, just to remember your visit to Bath. So thank you very much. Um, just to, uh, one or two other thank yous, um, I'd like to thank the Buy Me team, both past and present, um, for their uh, contribution. They're a pleasure to work with, um, their dedication and hard work, and they've bought the equipment up the hill for you to, to look at, and have, a number have supported the event in other ways, so I want to thank them and add my appreciation to them. Um, I'd like to thank the University of Bath for hosting this, this lecture in this lovely lecture theatre, which is, is great. Um, and also Gail Gillespie, who's done a, a tremendous amount of work behind the scenes uh, for organising the meeting. Thank you, Gail. Okay, so, okay. And I'd like to thank all of you for coming out on a rather cold, damp evening and um, for participating in the debate. That's really been... Great. Um, I'm also very pleased to welcome some students uh, from some of the local schools and colleges. Um, it's great to see you here. I hope you've been inspired and that you'll go on to develop technology that will support me in my older age. I'm not there yet. Um, uh, the talk has been recorded, so um, we should have the video and the podcast available on the University of Bath uh, public lecture website. No. <laughs> yes. Um, so you'll be able to pick that up uh, and share that with people. Um, there are some booklets in the lobby describing the work of the Smart Consortium on the literature stand, and if, uh, and if you want to Google the Smart Consortium, you can pick up on the work that Gail picked up on, and any of the other Buy Me projects, you can pick up on the Buy Me website or our newsletter, which is available on the exhibition stand. So, finally, for those of you who don't have tickets for the buffet... Um, thank you for coming, and I well, wish you a, a safe journey home, and we look forward to seeing you sometime in October next year, if not before. And for those of that you do have tickets for the buffet, um, I look forward to talking with you a little bit more and showing you around the exhibition. So thank you very much. Thank you.